What people have to go through to feed a family with a two-parent household, both of whom are working full-time, it's why I have really started to explore the notion of like, well, what do public food utilities look like? How can lessons from other countries, like with Brazil and what they did in the 90s in terms of public restaurants, public cafeterias, like how to make this easier for folks? But how do you apply that with the technology we have today? Imagine if imagine if food delivery, which, by the way, is not profitable for anyone. Nobody fucking makes money off of delivering food. I just need to clarify that. Amazon spends $30 million a year delivering shit to you, right? They're subsidizing that through their marketing services. DoorDash, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, all that shit. Nobody's making money off of it, right? So let's just level up on that. But the reason why I'm saying that is maybe that portion of the supply chain should be a public utility. Maybe it should just be publicly funded because right now it's just getting underwritten by venture capital because they're placing a bet that within 10 years, one of them is going to monopolize it all and be super profitable like Amazon is online. Mm -hmm. I have my doubts. I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to figure out how to deliver food profitably because what we call in the grocery industry, the last mile is always the hardest thing. But it's also one of the major issues around food insecurity, you know, and food apartheid is the fact that even if you put a a nice grocery store in a neighborhood or you have other food access options, sometimes it's that last mile, just getting it up the stairs to somebody. Or if they're in night school, they're skipping meals because they went from work to school they're technically food insecure. What if they just got free food delivered to them in between classes or something or while they're on their break? Call me a dreamer. Yeah, no, it's wild to me that we have this mindset that like cooking your own food from scratch all the time is the traditional way to do it because that is not true in any way. What is traditional is like anytime you have people living in cities, there's a restaurant on every corner or like yeah. a snack stand, like ancient Rome, every street corner had at least one little like cafeteria type restaurant. And they were like street vendor type things. Like one would do like, One's a bakery with bread, you know, like one does wine and fish snacks. They have their little specialty and they're everywhere. Anytime you do an archaeological dig of a Roman city, every street corner is a snack stand because they kind of figured out like, oh, building a kitchen in every single like broke person's apartment is like not an effective use of resources. Like when you have to haul wood by hand into the city, like that's our source of fuel. I can't remember where people were talking about this, but like a lot of the world, if you go anywhere, a lot of the food is street vendors. Singapore. Yeah, it's famous that is, for that. Singapore yeah. is interesting because it's hyper capitalist with a very strong social safety net, mm-hmm. highly regulated food sector, which is much of which is based around these food halls and their street food culture. It's like you fetishize it, but no, that's a very pragmatic solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like street vending and street food is like, I would say more the norm for the urban food supply, more than cooking everything yourself at home. And it's wild to me that Americans just like Because we have our own unique history with colonialism and a lot of our culture of how food is supposed to work definitely comes from like the big house on the plantation mentality. Um, We have this myth that everyone used to cook from scratch. I'm like, uh, the owners of the house didn't cook from scratch. No, they had servants that had slaves. (laughs) Yeah. And like even in the North, like post-Civil War, like moving on pretty close into the 20th century, basically before World War II, it was normal for middle-class people to have servants. We live in this tiny little dinky house with like three bedrooms, one bathroom. It was built in like during World War II, like not in a nice neighborhood. It used to have maid quarters in the back. 
it was like a barely a middle class house and it was still expected that there would be like a servant helping you out, which is wild to me. Like we would never think that today of like, oh yeah, this house belongs to servants. This is a shitty little house. And I think the other thing is, and this is something we're missing in my family because our grandparents at this point are all passed away and our parents are baby boomers and don't, aren't very, uh, they're not very grandparenty. I'll just say that, you know, with a lot of immigrant families that don't have this nuclear family philosophy, they have multiple generations living in the household. And when I'd go to my friend's house, who was Chinese from China, from Canton, Guangdong, his grandma lived with him and she did all the cooking because both nice. of his parents worked. Or likewise, like my friends who are like Jamaican or Puerto Rican, it's like extended family members helping out. And that's something that a lot of us miss out on. But it's also, it adds to that mythology that you're doing all this yourself in a two-parent household. We're both working full-time. It's like fucking crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's just a weird mentality to have. And I really just, the food movement kind of pushing that idea for the last 20 years has been just sadly really misinformed. That's really just it's just wasp propaganda. Okay. Like <laughs> you have to live like we think totally. we used to live and yeah, it's messed up. So one more quick little anecdote onto the idea that like fresh produce is the most healthy kind. And if you're freezing it or anything, then you're losing some nutrition. As a graduate student, I was doing a lot of research on basically the plant immune system, because if they're getting hit by a fungus or something like that, a lot of them will make compounds that are antifungal. They don't make them all the time because they're expensive to make. But if they're feeling attacked, they'll send out some antifungal compounds, right? So we had to grow a lot of plants, give them various levels of disease, and then kind of find out how much of these compounds they had in them. So you got to put it in a blender, extract the juice, and then run it through some spectroscopy. It takes a long time to do that. You can't get it to it all in one day. So what did we do? We froze it because it preserves all of the disease-fighting <laughs> compounds really, really well. Who <laughs> knew? Who knew? Yeah. So when people talk about like not just nutrients, but like there's all these other compounds that plants have that are like antioxidants and antihypertension and all this stuff. Those are the compounds that we were studying here. And they freeze great. End of story. <laughs> Need I say more? Yeah, gosh. So let's get into food utilities, specifically for like handling and distribution, like that sandwich layer between farms and people. And... I think the big caveat we need to do on this is, yeah, nobody really knows what they would look like. The best yeah. examples I know of are tribe-operated food handling facilities. Oh, sure. sure yeah. Sure. So like the Quapa have a meat processing plant that they just started, I think mostly for bison, because you can try and bring bison back. But if you don't have a way to like turn them into food in a way that is safe and legal, then it's not doing you a lot of good, is it? So that tribe is doing that. The Gila River Indian community grows a lot of food. I think it's on the Salt River in Arizona. I think there's a couple different tribes living on that area. And then the Yakima Nation up in central Washington has a big apple and cherry orchard, which is like really well run. I went out there to do their food safety audit, actually. And it was like at the tail end of a very, very long audit stint. So I was like hallucinating by the time I got there. So they had a great customer service experience, but like they were doing great. So it's really interesting to watch how tribes do it because they are governments. Like, however else you want to frame them, they are governments. It's not just an ethnic group. It is a nation, right? And so they have some social services that they're committed to providing. And so seeing how tribes do it, I think, is really, really illustrative of what a utility food system could look like. So, like, some of it they sell, like, out to the private market. Some of it they keep for tribes' use, like, to help feed people. And a lot of it they just sell to help fund the tribe's priorities because they have social services and they eat cash. So that's been really cool to look at. 
that's probably our best idea of what a public utility food system would look like. And also the citizen Potawatomi in Oklahoma have a chain of like retail stores, like kind of in food deserts. So they have a little grocery chain that's serving that area. And it's not just for the tribe. They're just like, it's our grocery store and anybody can go there. Yeah. So they have that link in the food system as well. Kind of like utility oriented, a little bit more than private industry. So. Yeah. And like, just to simplify this, it's like the concept of food utility for me is really about operationalizing the right to food. It's not just that you make a declaration or you pass a law. You have to put in the nuts and bolts to make it happen. 